Welcome, everybody, to The Think Tank, uh, episode four. Today, we have my good friend, Scaredy. He is from the beautiful country of Albania. We study together at Salem State University. He goes by many nicknames. He is the Albanian Flex Force, the man with the plan. Um, uh, I don't know, some other stuff. Welcome to the show, Scaredy. How are you doing? Thank you for having me, Adam. I'm doing wonderfully. Yeah. So we're just, we, we already had some like great conversation going and I, I want to keep going with that. But we were talking about how in a, the United States, we're so far removed from nature and agriculture that we pay other people to go to their apple fields and pick their apples. And that's like strange to observe from your standpoint. Yeah. It is. It is somewhat strange. Um, you don't, you don't really see that here, or at least in my, in my experience traveling Europe and, you know, traveling the world in general, I haven't seen it anywhere else done. Um, but I suppose that it's a, it's a consequence of just America being more urbanized and having, having a larger part of the population being concentrated in cities and major population centers, as opposed to, you know, everybody going out and having a, having an apple tree or a orange tree or whatever. So I think it's, it's probably become rarer because of urbanization. Yeah. And so what is it like, so you're from Albania. What mm-hmm. is the, what is the food experience or the growing experience like there compared to what you saw in Salem? In Salem or in America in general? In America in general. Um, I'd say that it's way more local and way more um, rewarding in that sense. It's, uh, because it's a smaller, like, you know, smaller agriculture or food economy, it means that most of the stuff that you find, although abundant, um, they're, you know, they're mostly all natural. They're pretty well, pretty well maintained, pretty well sold. Um, you can find pretty much organic food about everything. It's, it's gotten to the point where you have supermarkets that sell imported foods and vegetables, fruits and vegetables, stuff like that. But nobody really goes to buy them because throughout time and throughout generations, people always have made the connections with their families in, say, a village or a remote area where instead of going and buying olives from the store, you just ask your uh, a relative, a cousin or a whatever, a brother to bring you some, I don't know, to bring you like 50 pounds of olives from the village. And then you just sit down and pit them all or you can get olive oil that way. You can get dairy you can get obviously fruits and vegetables. Any pretty much anything that is can be grown in Albania, you can get it from a village directly, mm. which which makes organic and tasty food so much more available. Yeah, and that's interesting because it's not just more available, but it like fosters a connection. So I'm not just going to the store plopping down fifty bucks for olive oil and like bouncing. It's like this is a family event where we all get together and like pit olives or milk goat like whatever and <laughs> milk goats <laughs> yeah. well, you'll, you'll have to fill us in on what the the agriculture looks like in albania but um yeah sure i i read somewhere that like it it was self-sufficient right like agriculturally like you you grow enough to feed everyone in the country yeah um as far as i'm aware it is self-sufficient i haven't looked really looked at the economy that carefully recently but it's it's basically a remnant of when, when the country was under communist rule where our industry wasn't really that great, but obviously as pretty much every communist country, you needed to have enough food to feed people. Um, so there was a lot of agricultural development going on, even though interestingly enough, we actually never really made enough food to feed everyone. 
that seems to be a running theme with communist countries that, that they eventually do run out of food. But since then, and with the infrastructure and developments that we made during that time, we're still, we've become self-sufficient as far as I'm aware. That's, that's pretty cool. And didn't, so, okay, before, before we go further, can you paint us like a, a five minute picture of Albania? Like, and what it means to you and like the history and the culture. Um, can you just like, for those who haven't been exposed to the beautiful country of Albania, could you give them a, a word picture? Oh man, that is, uh, that is quite something for five minutes. Um, you can go I can see, I can say, oh, I mean, I could go shorter too. It's just that it's, um, for me, it all boils down to family connections. Um, the beauty of the actual countryside and you know the the territories and the fact and its history i believe that at least these are the three main contributing factors for me because it's just so um it's we're people that have had roots all the way in the past like antiquity like like sort of walking hand in hand with the ancient greeks and history has history has definitely not been kind to us uh but yet somehow we even though through all of that history, through all those events and, um, you know, troubling times, we still have managed to sort of land into modern days with our own culture and essentially, essentially completely homogenized society, which um, in other countries, like say, for example, the U.S. is a bit of a, a bit of an oddity to like talk about, but it's just so, it just speaks to, it just speaks to the to the after effects of whatever our history has done to us. It has forced us to become closer to to each other and basically keep a closer, tighter knit community. And that actually leads me to my second point, where everybody it's a small country, so family connections are very tight, and it's um, it, you can basically being that the family connections are very tight and the family tree is very expansive, you can essentially have relatives all over the country, mm-hmm. and you can you can know people. You think you think three million people at the time is a lot, but you'll be surprised at how many people you know that other you know random individuals you've never met actually know as well. It's it's very well connected, and at the end of the day, um, these people are spread out all over beautiful territories. We have, I'd say, we have everything here that you need. If you want to go and experience the Mediterranean, come here. It's way cheaper and it's equally as beautiful, and I guarantee you, you're going to have a good time. Whether you want to come here for cultural tourism and see museums and different sites and UNESCO sites, we have that. Um, if you ever wanted to go to beaches and enjoy the, the cool Mediterranean breeze and the sea, we also have that too. High mountain tops and green valleys. We, we got beaches to mountains to everything in between. Mm. I, think it's, um, I think honestly it's a blessing and you don't really notice it until you're gone away from it for a while. Mm. It, it, it's like, if, for example, it's such a blessing that whatever I would get come to the United States and somebody would be like, this is our beach. And I would just see like this great furious ocean. And I'm like, I was just thinking, I'm like, I really don't like this. <laughs> like, it's just, it doesn't hold the candle to it. But yeah. So when you, can you tell us a little bit about your, your time in the United States? How did you come from living in Albania to the U.S.? So I started uh, started off planning to come to the U.S. sometime in my uh, in high school. I think it was sophomore year, I believe. And we chose the United States because we had relatives there at the time, and we were also looking to. I was actually looking to get my education outside of the country because 
um, love it or hate this, loving or hating this country doesn't matter. You, if you want to sort of succeed in life, get out there, getting out and sorry, and doing your college or university um, in a foreign country is probably the best opportunity for you. So we chose America because we had relatives there and uh, we kind of fast-tracked the process of coming here or, or coming to the U.S. We sort of picked a school, whatever at the time was the cheapest, even though, it, you know, as we both know, it turned out to be vastly different than that. Um, so, yeah, that was basically the idea. Um, we had relatives and we also wanted to get a foreign education. So we fast-tracked to that and here I am now. Mm. So when you, what was the, the first thing that stood out to you when you came to the U.S.? So when you came here, you first came to New York or straight to Massachusetts? Uh, no. Well, the thing is that before I came to America for school, I actually had been there a couple more times. Ah. About three, three other times where I came over for vacation. So I was actually kind of accustomed to the people and to, to the way things would play out in the country like i i know live there is much much faster than here like here everyone is pretty much laid back um takes it easy you know that kind of stuff everybody's like yeah come have a coffee with me that kind of stuff over there is much more much more focused task driven um so when i first came there it was it didn't come as much of a shock but i can talk about my first time if you'd like to hear that yeah i'd like to know like what first like stood out to you that like when you first came here, that seemed like really different from Albania. I'd have to say literally the most, the thing that stood out the most, especially this, I noticed this when I was driving back uh, to my apartment after we landed in the States is the houses, the houses and the architecture is just so much more different than anything you see anywhere in Europe or Asia or wherever. It's just, it has its own, um, it has its own flair. And it might sound like something insignificant to find out, but being that that was my first impression, I couldn't help but think about how many, how many wooden houses there were. There was just so many like two story, three story wooden houses that I just, I just kind of, I was kind of flabbergasted. I was like, I, I never thought I'd see that. I, I'll, I thought to myself, like, what happens if, you know, if a storm rolls in here? Mm. And you know, I found that out later. But <laughs> yeah, uh, first impressions were the the uh, the architecture and then the second impression was obviously the people and the people were uh, genuinely wonderful uh, my family my cousin actually introduced me to some very very wonderful people and at the time it was actually um, being that we are homogenous um, people it came as sort of like it was kind of like the American dream or like what it stands for to be an American as our group of friends was essentially two Albanian kids which was me and my cousin, um, one black guy, one uh, Asian guy, I think it was Vietnamese. He's Vietnamese. And then we had like two kids from Boston, like really like thick Boston accents and stuff. Mm. And then we also had like, um, I think it was from Japan. So we basically were like a very multi, multi-ethnic and multiracial like group where I was like, yeah, this, this is actually kind of cool. I'm, I'm enjoying this. Uh, it was very refreshing and fun to see other people's perspectives and how they, uh, how they think about things and how they act and all that stuff. Mm. Yeah, that, wow, that's really interesting. So when, when you came to Salem, did you get that similar feel of that like melting pot kind of culture where there's like all these different people from these different backgrounds? And what was, what was that like coming 
like coming on a vacation for like a short time versus like coming to live there for university? It was a, it was a vastly different experience, to be honest. It was a, the whole multiracial and multi-ethnic aspect of it was much more emphasized, especially being that there was other international students there from different countries. So that was even better. I think that was probably the fact, the thing that I enjoyed more is that I got to meet people from so many different countries and on, from countries that I had never actually thought I'd, I'd meet. Like my, my first best friend was from Nepal, a place mm. where I never thought I would, I would have any interaction with, but here we are. Um, yeah, that was, it was a big like uh, melting pot, a cultural moment living here like adjusting at first felt kind of odd in a sense like it, it's a bit hard to explain but it the people the people were very friendly and very uh helpful i i especially notice is people in in the united states are like genuinely um much more helpful than other countries that i've been to i think it stems for i think it's just a cultural thing but a lot of people are very like open and wanting to wanting to open a conversation and very helpful and very curious about you especially if, if they learn that you're from a foreign country so that was uh that was a bit of my experience the first couple of months everybody was like oh where are you from and i told them my country and they'd be like oh so where's that or how's that and it's like oh i actually know that so i have a cousin you know that kind of stuff there was all this like a nice uh nice icebreaker in the beginning mm, so i think that's interesting because i think there's a, a conception within America is that so much of us are closed minded and like, we don't care about anywhere else except America. But at least in your experience, you've had it that when you, when they find out that you're like an international student, they're like very curious and like open to learning about that. Yeah. I've definitely had my run in with people that are, um, that are very close minded and like individualistic and believe me that that sentiment still rings true for a, for a good amount of people. Uh, but all I've had personally are mostly good experiences and mm. genu- genuinely like um, friendly, welcoming people. All right. Well, that's, that's interesting. Uh, when you said you've traveled like other places in Europe, how was like, how was that different? So like when you, I think you went to Germany, correct? Um, Italy? Belgium, actually. Belgium. Belgium. Well, I've been to Italy too. I've been to a bunch of places, but I don't, I've never been to Germany or France for that matter. All right. Have you seen like, cause those are all different cultures, but would you say that there's like, was there like a European overarching like culture that like may be dominant there that doesn't carry over to the U S I know like the working and like constantly going fast is one of them, but are there any other? Um, I would say, I mean, I can draw parallels to your, uh, to the culture in America, but I, I personally don't believe that there's much, um, much overarching cultures. The one overarching thing that I could, I can honestly think about is the fact that people here are less um, approachable. And I, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just that uh, people here genuinely genu- are very less likely to give you the time of day or, you know, randomly stop to help you if something, if something is happening or start up a, a conversation here in Europe. Like, mm-hmm. and, and that is actually even further, um, further, em- like, is is further emphasized by the by you know different countries like usually for example Finnish people are really not uh <laughs> not opening or welcome well they're actually welcome but they they won't give it the time of day and you know German people are very efficient and all that kind of stuff some of the stereotypes do ring true but the most the most overarching theme is probably the fact that people aren't as approachable and I don't mean that in a bad way yeah. other than that there's not too many um 
there's not too many similarities culture wise speaking. Mm. Interesting. So would, what are the, you kind of touched on this before, but like, what are the, what would you say culturally? Cause you said family history and like connection are the main like parts of like what stick out of to Albania to you. Like, what would you say like sets you apart? Like what's uniquely Albanian? I know that there is um, your history resisting like the Ottoman empire is like a pretty defining like part of cultural identity. Is that oh, yes. true? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, we, um, it's essentially the first thing that uh, that kind of put us on a map for a long time. Uh, to give a brief rundown of history, the Illyrian, uh, the Illyrian kingdom, or the Illyrian, well, it wasn't actually empire; it was a kingdom. The Illyrian kingdom united all the um, the Illyrian tribes basically under one queen or one king at the time, or wherever it was. And the Illyrian people at the time were relatively well known on the map they had encounters with the romans and stuff like that but then for the longest time we were under ottoman rule and that was that uprising that sort of um sort of resistance around you know around the middle ages that's sort of what defined us and kind of put us on the map not only for ourselves but also for like knowledge of other countries basically that's where the first idea of like an independent albania kind of emerged mm. that's where um we actually get the the current day flag is actually based on the sigil of the house Castro, the one that uh, that started the revolution or the insurrection, if you say that. That's what the Ottomans would call it, insurrection. But um, but we don't talk about the Ottomans. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that was basically it. That was sort of like the um, the defining moment, I'd, I'd say. Yeah, and that that the flag is it's like the two headed eagle, right? Mm-hmm. And the, yeah. on the red background, and that was uh. If I if my notes are correct here, it was the house of Skanderbeg, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so he, it, like, it was actually it was actually a house Castro. That was the the actual name. Uh, it's sort of it's sort of weird because people back then, as in many European countries, they had like they had like three or four different names. Like his full name was Jerich Castro Skanderbeg, which is like people know him by Skanderbeg, but that was his actual name, Jerich Castro. Um, Skanderbeg was actually a term given to him from um, the Sultan because he he started off as a Yenissary at first. He was actually sold into service by his Albanian father when when the Sultan came and um, came and conquered the 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 castle where he lived. And then after a while, he was like, "Damn, it actually kind of feels bad making a living on my uh, countryman's back." So he took a bunch of Albanian um, soldiers and Yenissaries also and set off. And he actually, uh, I don't know if you've read about this or seen it in your notes, but he actually took his castle without a single tear, uh, um, <laughs> a single drop of blood being shed. He essentially forged a false document where he gave it to the current, you know, current puppet ruler or or whatever you want to call it, to the castle. And essentially, the document said, "Jehkasiyoskunderbeo takes control of this castle, signed the Sultan." And the guy just walked out with his armies and left. And then after that, he just raised the flag. Uh, that's how the revolution began. Wow, that's that's really interesting. So that's like the the would you say like the start of like the story of like Albania and like the founding cultural myth or story or event. Uh, it's it's been it's been there before, uh, closely guarded and kept uh, from generation to generation. Because the thing is, we didn't actually have an alphabet until very late as compared to different other countries because you know being under the ottoman rule you kind of you know you spoke turkish or ottoman whatever the language was at the time and whoever 
managed to speak Albanian or knew how to speak Albanian, they would only pass it to each other orally speaking. Mm. There was no written alphabet or no... During that time, there wasn't really any proof per se of like Albanian literature and stuff like that until we actually developed an alphabet of our own. That's where the... That's where every country's defining characteristic, like literature, art, history, all that stuff. That's where written, written, um, written uh, action started to be actually documented. Mm, interesting. So it's, I mean, that's a, a seemingly common factor in history is like people have this like spirit of like nationalism or like we're a unified people. And mm. there's like this cultural shift or blooming um, and language is like such a huge part of that is, I mean, that's similar with like Judaism is like there was Yiddish in like certain like diaspora communities. And that really united a lot of people as like a nation building tool. It didn't end up like working out, um, but it worked for a lot of other countries. And I yeah, some, some succeeded, some uh, failed, some succeeded later on after multiple tries, like, the the Skanderbeg revolution wasn't really the the def, it was definitely the defining moment and the start of the movement but the one that really defined it was the Albanian renaissance that's what it's called at least where all the basically it was essentially like a like a, you know the normal renaissance that you actually hear about in history a lot of artists painters writers poets all that stuff they started producing works um, dedicated to Albania itself so that helped in creating a national identity oh. for a while was this before or after they were under Ottoman rule? Uh, the thing is that we declared uh, independence from Ottoman rule in 1912. So mm. it was constantly done under Ottoman rule. But being that we were a province, like we were basically conquered. So there wasn't actually, um, after Skanderbeg died, there wasn't really armed resistance. It was mostly political moves to get us out of the rut, essentially. Mm. Like we would send emissaries to like, you know, European conventions and stuff like that. Um, or accords and all that stuff. And essentially little, little by little, we managed to like sort of loosen the grip just little by, and then once the Ottoman empire was severely weakened from the war, we, well, not the war because the war started later on, but it was severely weakened before the war, world war one even started. Uh, once it was severely weakened, we decided to, you know, declare independence. <laughs> mm. Interesting. So how, Hmm. I'm just, I'm, I'm curious to, see how like because that's a common a common thread of like especially recently is like after world war one or world war two these great empires fell and then like these own countries like rose up and came together and yeah but then you were after that was it it became part of the soviet union right so it kind of blobbed back into it actually we actually didn't become part of the soviet union we after we declared our independence we stayed an independent state and after world war two uh, the Communist Party took hold, and we were essentially just another communist country like Russia mm. or China at the time, or the you know the Soviet Union as we know it. And um, yeah, I could talk about all day about that <laughs> from first hand. If I had first hand experiences from parents and you know grandparents and stuff. I'm technically the first generation to like, at least on our family, to live in you know in a democratic Albania, if you if you'd say that. Um, so yeah. We became part of the, um, we became communist Albania. And then in 1990, um, it was toppled. The regime was toppled. And then we became a, we became a democratic republic after that. Mm. Have you noticed, this is like a, a, a weird question. Have you noticed like a difference in thinking between like the older generations that live through communism versus like you and like your peers 
who didn't grow up with that and have like different cultural values? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's very, it's, it's a very significant shift. Um, the, the one thing that I was actually very uh, surprised to hear about is that, um, so to, to paint a picture being that I came in America, I was obviously going to come into contact with, uh, with different, you know, cultures. Mm. Cut it out for a second. Oh, the, the audio. Yeah, cut it out for a second. All right. Hold on. All right. We're back. So we were just talking about how there's differences in perceived like dating and we won't get into like details, but essentially what you observed is there's a cultural shift between like our generation who doesn't really consider like, or not doesn't consider, but doesn't see like blood tie or like keeping an ethnic like stream going where there's an older generation that kind of has a history of we need to keep this like in the in the tribe and mm. like there's a lot of similarities with like judaism is like you're really encouraged to meet like jews are encouraged to meet other jews to keep like yeah. more jews coming so you got to keep the population yeah. up yeah exactly so yeah i'd, I'd say that uh, you actually mentioned uh explained it much better it's more less more it's less of a ooh, we're the best like it's less of a nationalistic thing and it's more of a tribal thing in yeah. a sense. like some things um there is still some remnants of old culture here and i can actually get into that if you want but um this sort of like i guess demand from older not demand but like preference from older generations and actually current generations too uh some some of them is is actually um it's actually a part of that dates back to a while back mm. when you say like classical or like old culture like what what do you mean so we've had because you actually asked what are some uniquely what are some things that make albanians unique right and one of them is um is the creation of the kanun 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 that's what we call it um it's um i guess you can say it's canon like you know like something is canon in the literature or something like that um and essentially, to give some to give some background to this, uh, essentially, when the Ottoman Empire invaded and occupied the territory, they couldn't really control the northern part of the country because of its difficult terrain. They couldn't really get troops, so you know, not getting not being able to get troops there, it wasn't really going to get you know get too much respect. So essentially, they let the north be self-governed. So being that the north was just just basically a bunch of villages and tribes, really. They build up. They came up with a canoe, which is basically a rule book, sort of guidelines and rules that you have to follow. You can think of it as like legislature, but it's much much looser and it's not as well defined. Mm. And this this book, this canoe, basically gave rules on marriage, family, uh, besa, which is um, which is the concept of trusting people and putting your trust in people and being hospitable. I can. There's, that's also another whole concept, like parallel to the canoe, but that's that's a that's a spoken concept. That's sort of like a thing that every Albanian kind of tries to abide by. But, um, and then they also provided rules about crime. Um, one of the most infamous one is uh, blood feuds among families. That is actually that is actually the last remnants of the Kanun, um, I guess you could say, rules. Like a couple of years back, probably like five to six years back, you could you would still hear families on the news that would like kill. Like you just hear like randomly on the news, it's like, hey, this person just you know killed two people, and it's because of a blood feud kind of thing. Once they get arrested, so it's it's definitely like a dark part of it, where to basically explain it is essentially 
if you happen to kill somebody, be it accidentally or intentionally of someone, another family, then they have a right by the canoe to uh, get the blood of one of your family. Mm. So essentially, and there was actually sort of some, there was actually ways to fix this back then, like hundreds of years back. Uh, you would go before a council of like village elders or stuff like that. Um, and you could actually get imprisoned. There was actually some something called the tower, which was, it wasn't really always a tower. It's basically just like a isolated um, place where you put the the accused. And say, for example, if if it was decided that the blood feud wasn't going to be a thing, then the person that committed that crime or that killed that person accidentally or intentionally would spend like, I don't know, like 30 days or more like in solitude with like very little water. stuff like that. It was, uh, they had interesting rules, but probably the, the blood feuds are probably the most prominent one that has, has still has some, um, some, you know, you still hear about it today, basically. It, wow. So these, it sounds like these rules were kind of put in place to like prevent like just warfare from breaking out. So it was just like eye for an eye kind of situation, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely that because uh, I, I'm like, you can definitely notice that, but my guess for it would be that they, we've also had a lot of inviting throughout our history. Mm. Um, Albanians can do two things. They can either get together really well or they can get together for shit <laughs> either or <laughs> no in between. So, I'm guessing it's it's sort of a way to basically to basically run a decentralized group of people with different tribes because nobody was actually getting together to form like a like a you know a, a northern government or anything like that. It was still just a bunch of villages, but it was cool that everybody like you know it was cool at the time that everybody abided by the canoe. Yeah, and can you you we're talking about Besa? It was like hospitality, like yeah. Culture. Can you go more into that? So it's been um it's been a pretty prominent theme throughout the um, throughout basically Albanian history as far as as far back as um so as far back as written Albanian history dates there was Besa so it was probably like even way back it was it existed even back then way before literature um, it essentially states that it states two things two basic things. It also says a bunch of other things, but the two, these are the two most important aspects of it is one, you always have to be hospitable to a person, whoever that might be like, that could be your, uh, the person you wish the worst upon. But when, you know, he, he comes to your door, you know, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night, you need to give him, um, you need to give him shelter or like welcome him into your home. That was actually, um, that was actually a, a tradition a while back where you would light up a lantern, I guess back in the middle ages to indicate that you were, you know, you were willing to take people in. Uh, and the second one is to keep a promise. That's what it, that's what the word stems from. It's called being besnik, which means lo- being loyal. Um, so best means, just kind of means loyalty. That's that basically what it boils down to. The main part of it is keeping a promise. So when I say that I give you my best, that means that you have my word for it and I can't actually go back on it. Like it's, it's, it's basically a very big promise as the mm. toddlers would say, I give you big, big, big promise. Yeah. So it's like, there's this element of kind of like honor and you have to like have this, if you like say something and you're going to do it, like you have to do it. Cause yeah. that's your word. That's your honor. That's your, your promise. Yeah. Obviously like things, things have changed and not everybody buys, but I don't even, I, I try to, I try to honor his values, but like, I'm not going to say, you know, 
I'm not gonna put my best of like you know small things. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not gonna say I put my best so that I'm gonna come to work every day at eight sharp. Right. <laughs> That's not gonna happen. But you know, it's something that, and I think it actually kind of in current day it gives it prominence and it gives it significance when we actually use it to yeah. something like, for example, I can say, I give my best so that I will, you know, you'll always have a place in my home, Adam, think whatever you pull up when you're like 60 or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, that, so, that'll happen before I'm 60. So thank you for the offer. But, um, <laughs> Always welcome. Yeah. But it's, so the, it's like, it's a cultural ideal is what it sounds like. Like what you aspire to like hold. Yeah. Sacred yeah. True. I guess you could say that it's a cultural deal. For example, uh, Jerry Castellotti basically pulled people together using Bessa. At least, at least he pulled the northern uh, tribes because the idea of his whole revolution is that all Albanians got together. South, middle, you know, mm. northern Albanians. And obviously you needed a way to get this group of people that hadn't been united since, you know, the ancient, uh, the ancient Romans, since the Illyrian times and actually, you know, get them to work together efficiently. Mm. And giving someone their best is, you know, basically played a huge role into getting Northern support for his cause. Are there, um, now, are there a lot of like noticeable cultural differences between like the North and the South? Cause I know you said like some places have like beautiful Mediterranean beach and the other is like a mountaintop. So how does that well, kind of play out? Um, well, North, the North has always been more remote and a bit, a bit less developed. So basically it goes like this. The the center of the country, the place where I'm at, Tirana, Erbasan, a bunch of like central cities, they're very well developed. Duras, Duras or Durao, as it was known in antiquity, it's a port. Uh, it was at the time the most important port. Now it's just, you know, a third, third world country port. <laughs> just a normal port. Um, and then in the south, you have a very tourism-driven economy. It's also being developed really well, and that's where you'll find all the nice beaches and all the cool Mediterranean um I guess the vistas. Mm. Yeah, that's the best word for it. And then in the north, the north is a more sort of um, personally driven economy, if that makes any sense. There's a lot of like personal farms. Um, there's a lot of like, um, how do you say it in English? There's a lot of farming. There's a lot of like uh, animal. Mm. What's what's that word when you work with animals? Husbandry. Husbandry. Yeah, that's the word. There's a lot of husbandry. Um, there's also a lot of factories up north because there's a lot of um, industry basically there's a lot of uh, raw resources so yeah that's kind of how the regions sort of support themselves and the north has probably some of the most beautiful mountainous vistas that you'll ever encounter essentially it's it's essentially like a swiss alps light version <laughs> which for a lot of people that see it for the first time is honestly enough like <laughs> until they see the, swiss, the actual swiss alps but yeah it's it's beautiful and um the cool thing about the Norse is that it's beautiful during the summer and it's even more beautiful during the winter where it actually snows. Mm. So yeah, there's not only is there a difference culturally geographically, but there's also a difference in, you know, weather patterns. Yeah. Now for what kind of like, what's the food culture like? So do they follow like a Mediterranean diet more in like the, the North and then in the South, it's like different mountainous food or like what's your Mm. favorite, like Albanian meals? Hmm. I'd say that the South is definitely more Mediterranean driven. There's a lot more. Um, so to, to actually preface, uh, being that, you know, it's obviously one country um, that's sort of, and it's a small country too. The the knowledge about food will pass pretty quickly, but you notice some 
some striking similarity or characteristics, I guess, where the South will deal, say, for example, much more in honey. You'll see a lot more honey being sold in the South than you'll see being sold in the North. But then again, if you buy it from two different, from these two different parts of the country, they all taste, taste vastly different because they're, they cultivate it differently. Mm. Like for example, the, the North actually deals, you know, sells raw honey a lot. Sorry, not raw honey, wild honey. That's what I meant. Honey that is basically taken, they just produce from actual wildflowers in nature. Meanwhile, the South is more uh, farm driven. Like they have bee farms and stuff mm. like that. Just to give an example, but um, I would say that the Northern food is much more uh, calorie and like heavy. Uh, it's much more heavy food. It's very, uh, it's very fat and very carbs uh, driven. A lot of, um, a lot of dough. Our, our food actually has a lot of, uh, a lot of dough and syrup, at least for desserts, but dough plays a major, major part on it. And as far as my favorite food, I'd say it's a, uh, this is actually a good one. It's it's um, it's called yufka. Yufka. Yeah, the actual full name is is the uh, Debra's yufka. Debra is a is a is a town up north, and essentially they're just egg noodles that are prepped, cut thinly, and obviously like you know you can actually have them fresh or dry, whatever. They're egg noodles, and instead of boiling them like you would boil pasta, you bake them in the oven so you get them crispy. And then you pour chicken stock on them. And then you also put the chicken in there and you bake it with the chicken. So essentially you end up with a, with a, with a basically a big deep, deep dish of baked crunchy pasta, very buttery too. The butter is like a very uh, defining factor. It's like very buttery and very like heavy and hearty. And then you also have like a beautifully like tender, but well roasted chicken mm. in there. It's, it's actually a defining, it's a defining uh, sort of supporting element to a chicken. So for example, when you go to an Albanian restaurant and you order a chicken, a whole chicken, or maybe a lamb or whatever, lamb and chicken are the two main meats that we eat here. When you order these, sometimes the waiters will ask you if you want them with yufka as supporting, if you want them with rice, uh, or if you want them with chul, which is basically just, um, what do you what do you call when it's like very like something is very sloppy like when you know you can pick it up with your spoon and it's like gloopy. Chul is, is basically just like a very like gloopy thing that you prepare. It's very delicious. Trust me, it is it is godly. But there's no better way to explain it than it just being kind of gloopy. It looks very unappetizing at first, but after your first taste, it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. All right. I'll have to give it a try when I when I'm over there. Oh, we'll we'll uh, we'll give you some tours. Don't worry. Definitely. And then you were mentioning before um, something with oranges. It was like that your boss made the orange something. Yeah. So um, hold on. Okay. I had to switch out these. My my headphones have have broken down, as you can see. I I'm barely holding on for dear life. <laughs> we appreciate your uh, perseverance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very hard. Um, but essentially, yeah, my boss actually, for those that, you know, don't know, or actually they, they didn't get to hear this conversation before I'm a software developer right now and I'm surrounded by technology pretty much every day. However, my boss still has found a way to sort of, um, get people, you know, I guess occupied on their breaks or, you know, just have them relax in different ways. We have, we actually have a monkey over there at the office. We have monkey, Wait, we have a bunch of different pets. You have a monkey? Yeah, we have a monkey. Um, Wait, no, hold up, hold up. You have a pet monkey in your software development office? 
Okay, so yeah, I guess you could say that we actually we have a bunch of cats and puppies. Well, mostly cats. We have uh, we have a three-legged cat and another uh, Siamese beauty. They're very gorgeous and they're probably the, the sweetest things. And then we we have a dog outside. They actually used to be two dogs, but my family got one. We actually have it here right now. He's not in the room because I closed the door on the dogs, but uh, he's he's gorgeous. His name is Leo. And then we also have a monkey. She unfortunately has just stays caged in, um, and I think that's that's kind of a travesty. Um, uh, she's gorgeous. She's very fun to to be around. The problem with that is that she's been locked up for so long that basically she, at this point she's very hostile to everything else. So whenever I you know I try to you know give her air kisses or try to pet her, she'll just grit her teeth at me. This okay. I don't know how to process this. How did yeah. you? How did you get a monkey in? Like, why? Like, wh- that seems very out of place. So it was actually, um, well, they got the monkey, not me. But uh, I, I don't know how he he basically got his hands on it. But I know for a fact that I I'm pretty sure it's illegal to have them caged in or to own one to begin with. Uh, so, um. Essentially, what I was saying is that he got it somewhere. I don't know where or when, but he has he had it for a while actually outside of a cage. Like he would actually walk her with like a little like small leash, and she she she'd walk on two feet too. Like sometimes she'd just kind of like waddle about, and uh, she she was very like nice back then, a couple of years back. But then there was an accident where the monkey bit his wife in the thigh. Because after all, she's still a wild animal, vastly different from dogs. And at that point, he basically caged her in the into the cage, you know, that we have at the office. She, the cage is actually right next to our eating area. So while we're eating, she's either reaching out to grab food or gritting our teeth at gritting her teeth at us whenever we look at her. I could I could like look to the side and just kind of give her kisses, like, and she just grit her teeth at me and start chattering. This sounds terrible. I do not support it. Okay. I do not support it. I just don't have the power to like demand that sort of change. It is a small company after all. So they can just be like, haha, no, you don't get to say that. I see. Yeah. It's kind of messed up. I I could talk about this all day, but all right. I I think I have to, I've just blow past this monkey. We're talking about the orange, the orange tree in your office next to your monkey (laughs) that you make, you make stuff during your break. Right. Right. But before I get to the orange, she, she is actually, uh, she she does actually act nice with like some workers there and also the owner uh the company she actually she actually have you ever seen a monkey no i've never seen a monkey like outside of a zoo let alone in my break room at my software development company (laughs) (laughs) he's actually so she holds onto the cage kind of and she like bears her chest out so the, the person can give her scratches and she just kind of looks away like she's too too sophisticated for that. She always does this. And um, yeah, yeah, she's she's pretty cool. She's pretty cool. I just wish she wasn't um, she wasn't in the cage. But then at this point, I believe that if somebody were to let her out, then she'd probably just run off. Yeah, and you wouldn't want um, a wild monkey running the streets of Albania, so. Not, not only wild, just pissed off too. Like she'd yeah. probably just attack at everything. Wild and angry yeah. monkey. Yeah, her getting in her getting into a fight with a dog is not. The thing is that we also have strays here in Albania. Like we don't have a lot. We used to have much more, but we now have less. 
So I can't imagine what an encounter between an angry monkey and a dog would look like. Oh my god, I can't either. <laughs> be absurd. Yeah, but as we were saying, the orange tree. <laughs> so yeah, um, <laughs> I know, right? A monkey. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, but then so- again, for 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 you who did not, for you who didn't did not hear it, or maybe Adam has not told you, Adam actually skinned a deer a while back, like what last week? Yes, but that was a already killed roadkill deer that was like alive until it got hit by a car. That was mm-hmm. not the same as I'm not trying to judge scarcity. It's just I wasn't expecting going from like orange tree to like monkey in a cage in your break room. That was like uh that's a that's a jump. I just that's good. I, I would She also known. she also drinks Raki occasionally. What is what is that? Raki. Is is you that know, the orange drink? No, the moonshine. You remember that moonshine oh, that I gave you? Yeah, the the uh the gin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, so, yeah, I guess you can call it no, actually not the gin, the actual moonshine, the one that I kept in a snapple bottle. Oh, oh, okay. So uh, just for some story background, one time Scaredy like came back to our dorm. We were living in Salem State, Viking two oh seven, best of times, and he had two like skanky looking, like a plastic water bottle and a Snapple bottle with like stuff in it. And I'm like, Scaredy, like, what what is this? And in this Snapple bottle, he has like homemade Albanian moonshine, and the other in this like grody ass like plastic bottle, he has like albanian honey and he says what you you do is you you take the shot of the moonshine and then a spoonful of the honey and i took a shot of this moonshine and it was like liquid gold pouring down like my insides and i just felt this like golden glow and then you take the honey and you just like it's so sweet and i'm like oh my god this is like in this incredible experience i'm like having in my (laughs) kitchen in my dorm (laughs) Uh, Would have thought, right, in your dorm, yeah, what, so- sophomore year. <laughs> yeah, in front of our grody sink, where we we washed our dishes and brushed our teeth at the same time. So, <laughs> oh, uh, that was a good time. Wild times. Yeah. yeah. Also, shout out to um, we mentioned it before, but shout out to Tenzin, our uh, homie from Nepal, um, and to Will, who Ooh. is a skeleton ghost who has not made himself known to the world in a year. But we yeah. missed the both of them. I, I miss Will, man. I, I haven't been uh I haven't been in the best of uh best of like I guess mental place place yeah. you could call, mental space to sort of uh get back to like discording and stuff like that. I but I basically just opened it to like talk with like a friend here that I do. But yeah, I do miss Will. I, th- I think he's still at that room that he used to be. It's just that um yeah, I just haven't been in touch with people for yeah. a while. So. I think they moved out. I'm pretty sure. Like, oh no! I mean, I mean a Discord room, not an actual oh, building. Oh, actual okay. Room. But uh, yeah, they did actually move out. I don't know where Will is now, though. I think I'm gonna guess he's back at home. Yeah, uh, maybe. And then Stephanie know. is at the Amer is doing AmeriCorps. Shout yeah, out to Stephanie is. Young. Shout out to Stephanie. Yeah. And I don't know where Sean Dope as hell. Harlan is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Life takes a turn, man. Yeah, it's crazy. Crazy. <sighs> yes. So for the people who don't know, we use we have a or mandarin tree in our yard that we actually our boss actually not me. Why? Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
he uses it to make uh, moonshine or raki as we called R A K I. That's it. Um, it's a traditional drink that has been drunk uh, for a long time, or as long as I've known it, and my grandpa has known it, and my great grandpa has known it. Um, if you can't take a shot of raki, you're not a man, as they say here. You need to be able to keep up with the elders, as they, as they also say. But <laughs> yeah, uh, so yeah, he uses it to make raki and in a, in two huge boilers. He basically distills that thing right next to our break room. If you ever wanted, if you ever wanted to code, and then sit down, have food, look at a monkey, and then step outside for a smoke and be right next to a hot boiling boiler that distills raki, then come here and come to my company and get a job, and you'll you'll do all that. I guess it's it's an experience, man. But yeah, um, if you can have some raki, and actually this is a this is a good time to mention that I actually had undistilled raki so the thing is that you let the process run for a while you distill it once and then you distill it another time you basically run it through a couple times and drinking um once distilled raki is sort of like drinking plastic it smells like plastic it smells like molten plastic and it kind of tastes like molten plastic even though i've never tasted molten plastic i just can't shake that feeling it tastes it tastes and smells very industrial it's weird and how does it make you feel it makes me feel uncomfortable. Like it's not as, it's actually not as burning as you, as you know, the ones that you had. Yeah. You need to distill it a couple times to, it's a weird thing. So for example, one, this once distilled raki is not, does not burn your throat. The good, by the way, the good, def, the definition of a good raki is when you feel it run down your throat all the way to your stomach. That's yeah. the definition of good. Raki. Which is exactly like what happened with the one I drank. I it like went through my whole body. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And Meanwhile, once this raki it just kind of burns your mouth a little bit, and then you don't really feel it when you take when you uh, gulp it down. But yeah, that's like that's the main difference between uh, starting to be made and finished raki. Mm. Yeah, um, it's pretty cool. Um, they still haven't given us a bottle for New Year's Eve. Kind of a shame, but you know maybe that'll change in the future. Yeah. And it's it's distilled out of oranges. You said mandarins. Mandarins. You, essentially, if it's a fruit that has sugars in it, if you know it has like fructose or whatever yeah then you can make raki out of it interesting i, I think it's fructose or it's or is it glucose i'm not i'm not, I'm not I'm, up to par with my, yeah i uh, think like, fructose is the fruit one uh, yeah, we, we, we're not majoring in nutrition so whatever yeah uh but yeah essentially you can make you can make orange raki you can make grape raki grape is usually the, you can also make um what do you call it um plum plum raki plum mm. raki is actually very popular it's probably one of the better ones um, you can also make what, um, yeah, there's actually two types of plums. We have big red plums that are very sweet. And we also have very small green plums that are very, uh, sour. It's sort of like a, it's like sort of eating like a sweet and sour candy. They're pretty cool. Mm, so you can make great cool. both of them. But yeah, there's a lot of different options and stuff. <laughs> All right. Um, I think we, we've hit like an hour. This has been really good. Um, yeah. I'm going to throw some like lightning round questions at you unless we you have any wrapping up uh statements you'd like to make sell albania on us or anything you'd like to share to the world before our our rapid fire round well before okay before the rapid fire uh i'd like to say that um i like to say that coming to america has changed my life for the better i've met some very wonderful people and one very special person that i had to hold very close to my heart in case she's hearing this 
Um, I miss you dearly, and I can't wait to see. <laughs> I can't even finish what I said. I can't wait to see you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was that's all, honestly my only uh, sort of uh, wrapping statement. If you and also another thing, a business pitch. I guess I'm not good at these, but if you want, basically the Mediterranean experience on a budget, but equally just as good, then come here. Give it a try. Stay a while. We do not abide by coronavirus rules. We we don't wear masks. We just vibe. And to a lot of people, this might come off as a turnoff. But um, just for your own personal safety, wear your mask. Don't go out after 10 o'clock because there's a curfew. And uh, come enjoy your time here. Have some fun. All right. You, you heard it here first. Uh, Albania is the next hot um, hipster travel spot for those who don't want to dish out big bucks but still want the authentic mediterranean experience and also and also one additional closing statement we're pretty much one of the few countries that has their borders open to americans at this time of the year so you really don't have much of a choice you all right well well, it's the covid travel spot um all right so some rapid fire questions uh these are personal um first is uh if you could have any animal like body part or power what would be and why how can i answer this in a rapidly manner when it's just so funny come on yeah we, we've known this <laughs> you have to answer it it's it's non-optional okay uh i'll answer it i'll have a um i'd have the wing the wing wing no wings i will have probably the wings of a bird probably an albatross because they have huge wings um yeah, that that'd be pretty dope, honestly. Just be, yeah. just being able to like jump off your or jump off the eleventh floor here at home and just glide all the way to work that that'd be pretty dope. That would be cool. Yeah, power of flight, awesome. What is one album or like one song that you can't live without? Oh man, this is a tough question. It's actually uh, it's Eric Pride's piano. It's a house track, and it's it's basically the defining uh song to my wait did you say an album or a track either uh, i'd say yeah it's, i think i'd say it's a track i'm not really like huge on all albums i need to i need to like all the songs in the album to consider mm-hmm. it like my favorite but uh yeah it's eric pride's piano he's a house artist uh also goes as prada very very popular in europe it used to be and it still is probably one of the best djs out there and yeah, it was a soundtrack to my late middle school, early high school life. And it was absolutely wonderful. Awesome. Well, I'll have to check that out. Um, all right. What's one piece of advice that you've gotten that is either so good that you have to share it with everyone or so bad that you have to warn everyone away from it? Oh, man. Um <laughs> these are these are very interesting questions uh i never actually thought about this the worst piece of advice i'd say is um is people saying to not deal with some stuff i know this is very general um actually let me rephrase that the best piece of advice is to never sort of um never set your expectations too high that was my the best piece of advice that i've been given so it was actually for my parents and it's, it, it, it <laughs> yeah, I guess that says something, huh? Um, uh, it was actually given by my parents and it has helped me sort of in a way shape my relationship to certain people and adjust my expectations. And, so, and it has also helped me keep a clear head or a clear mind around some people because 
obviously you can't really expect like excellence or a hundred percent, or you can't, not everyone is going to be on the same wavelength as you are. And that's okay. That's okay. As long as you can, um, as long as you understand their reasoning and as long as they don't, you don't let it affect your life in a fundamental way, you, you'll make a lot of friends and even more acquaintances. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's good. Thank you, Scarity. And then our, our final, final question is, are there any quotes or words that have inspired you from anyone that you'd like to share with people or that have helped cement who you are? Mm. Nothing currently comes to mind, actually. But I would say that... Um, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say, actually. <laughs> I don't think... No, nothing really comes to mind. There's a lot of them. Yeah. Um, but... I can't actually like give you a definitive answer. Like I can't actually give you a quote because I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Comes to mind at the time. Maybe that's a question I should give people before, before, so they have it. Right. Yeah. 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 Maybe, maybe as the first rapid fire question. Yeah. But, um, all right, scary. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, this has been fantastic. Uh, you've been a wonderful cultural ambassador for Albania. Thank you. Thank you. Man. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. I can't wait to come over and experience everything your country has to offer once I'm able to do so. Um, yeah. Uh, and hopefully, and I also can't wait to get back to the United States and see all my, uh, my dearest friends, including Adam here and have some, um, have some of that American life, hopefully without, you know, a violent rev- revol- revolution or insurrection or yeah, whatever but, you want to call it going on. Yeah. Let's hope there's a country to come back to. Yeah. Whatever side, whatever side of the, that political spectrum you lean on, I guess, yeah, I guess you'd no. call it well, a revolution or insurrection, but yeah. Yeah. And all right, last last thing, let's let's give some shout outs to our, our homies in Salem. So shout out to Tenzin and Will, shout out to Steph, shout out to Anthony, shout out to who else? Who you got? Um shout out to Kenny. Shout out to Kenny. He's he's a he's a great guy. Um shout out to uh Damn bro. <laughs> damn, far removed, huh? Um shout out to Lily actually. She's, she's been a pretty dope person all around and always she's always been like a very like i guess i guess she's very, been very consistent and very like constantly supporting of people she's, she's pretty dope and also shout out to um shout out to Tanya. can't wait to see you, baby girl um <laughs> um yeah she's uh she's she's the, she, she's just something man yeah we we love Tanya on the think tank Hope she's doing well. Also, shout out Eli, shout out Stag, shout out Josh, shout out Skippy. I think you graduated. Anyway, thank you so much. Uh, We will see you on the next episode of The Think Tank. Peace.